Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm really looking forward to this interview um, about a book titled The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World, published by Bloomsbury in 2022, which is the remarkable little-known story of two trailblazing women in the early Middle Ages who wielded immense power only to be vilified and then have their historical record almost completely ignored, for daring to rule. This book is absolutely fascinating. Um, It covers two queens that commanded armies and negotiated with kings and popes. They formed coalitions and broke them, mothered children and lost them. They fought a decades-long civil war against each other. With ingenuity and skill, they battled to stay alive in the game of statecraft and in the process laid the foundations of what would one day be Charlemagne's empire. And yet, after the queen's death, Their stories were rewritten and, to be honest, mostly forgotten. I certainly hadn't heard of them, and it's exactly the sort of thing I would have wanted to know about earlier. So I'm really pleased today to be sharing a bit about this book uh, by interviewing the author, Shelley Puhak. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Miranda, for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you. Could we start off, please, by having you introduce yourself, your background, and explain why you decided to write this book? Sure. So my background is actually strangely enough in literature and creative writing, specifically poetry. And for many years, I was an English professor. I held an endowed chair at a small liberal arts college in the States. And I have since left academia to write full time. And I actually stumbled across the story by accident while I was researching a completely different queen, a Viking queen. But what I found was so compelling that I committed myself to getting their biographies out to as big an audience as possible. I really wondered how we might think about women in power now if we knew how many women had ruled you know, so far in the past, particularly in the early medieval period. That sounds like a fabulous um, reason to write a book, really. So I'm glad you've done that. Um, so I want to, obviously in this interview, kind of do a bit of an overview of some of the amazing things you talk about in the book. We're not going to be able to get into every detail. Uh, Listeners who are interested definitely encourage you to read the book. Um, But we do kind of want to give some sense of who these queens were and what was the environment um, that they were operating in. And I want to sort of start off with a quotation from the opening part of the book that gives us a little bit of a flavor of it. And I'm going to ask you to kind of tell us about it in more detail. Um, But this was a really amazing quote to kind of have right at the beginning of the book to set the scene. So, quote, Rome has fallen. 
On the Empire's former frontier, the old order and a new barbarian world clash. One family emerges to conquer the divide. From the Atlantic coast to the Alps, from the North Sea to the Mediterranean, they rule. Until a terrible civil war fractures the dynasty. This war will rage for far longer than the English Wars of the Roses, engulfing more territory and killing more monarchs. This war will mark the end of antiquity and the beginning of the medieval era. What an amazing sort of framing <laughs> to give us. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of help us situate us in this world of the Franks at the beginning of the period that the book covers. Certainly. So one thing I think it's really important to know is that there's been a great deal of chaos, but there's also a great deal of social mobility, all because the world is in the process of recovering from extreme climate change that was wrought by a series of volcanic eruptions that essentially blotted out the sun and caused widespread famine. And two for one, a bubonic plague, which started making the rounds in the 540s. So by the middle of the sixth century, which is the period that the stories of these two queens begins, the former Roman province of Gaul is now being ruled by these Germanic Franks and this one family in particular, we call them the Merovingian dynasty. And it's important to know that these Franks have this habit of giving every surviving son a share of their father's kingdom. So at this time, their empire is divided between four brothers into these four sub-kingdoms, and they're busy kind of jockeying for position and trying to grab the scraps of what's been left since the Romans moved east. So in this environment, I think um, to it's going to come up later, right, this idea of you pass on the kingship by dividing it amongst sons, which is unusual. That's maybe not what we think of with medieval history in terms of uh, primogeniture, but this was really the establishment then. And so what did that, what, what are kind of the political territories that we're dealing with in the period of the book? So when the book opens, these four kingdoms, we um, have these different, essentially, if we say all the way, if we're looking at a map of continental Europe and we're looking at what we would consider modern day France and Western Germany um, and bits of like the Low Countries and Switzerland and uh, a little bit of, you know, Northern Italy. We are like looking at that as a block. And if we were to kind of almost divide that into four, and we'd say the upper right quadrant is going to be Austrasia. And the upper left quadrant is Neustria. And those are the two kingdoms um, that I think are most important um, in terms of this story. But then if we look at like the lower quadrants uh, in the right, we'd have essentially Burgundy. And to the left, we have the Aquitaine. These are, this is like a very sort of rough outline that I'm casting here, but just so we get like a general sense. And one thing that's makes things even more complicated is that like each king will have like a seaport in someone else's area. So even though Austrasia is in this upper right quadrant, the king there, Sigebert, also happens to have some port cities on the Mediterranean. Or, you know, the king of Burgundy will also have a port on the Atlantic. But by and large, that might help you to envision how how this empire has been divided among the four brothers. Right. So that's really helpful um, as a brief overview. And to emphasize that the, each of these quadrants is ruled by brothers, right? Which in a lot of ways um, makes what happens next even more interesting. So the, the title of the book obviously is The Dark Queens, 
So you do focus primarily, though not exclusively, on two royal women um, that enter this picture. So can you perhaps introduce us a little bit to who these two queens are? Where do they come from? What were their early lives like, as far as we know? Sure. Brunhild is born in neighboring Spain, which is ruled by a tribe called the Visigoths. And she's one of two daughters of the king there. And we know she receives a traditional classical education, Latin, Greek, rhetoric, poetry, all the things that would be expected um, of the time period. Somebody who's very well educated um, in, for example, like the Byzantine Empire. We also know that she has a very powerful mother who is one of her husband's most trusted political advisors and actually has helped secure the throne for him. So we can assume that she's in charge of her daughter's education. We know that. And that in addition to making sure they know their Latin and their Greek, that she's also educating them, uh, giving them an education in politics as well. And Brunhild happens to be the youngest daughter. So because there are no sons, while her sister is essentially being groomed to be somewhat of the heir, she's being groomed to make a foreign marriage to secure an alliance. And then in contrast to this, Fredegund is a palace slave in one of the Frankish kingdoms of Neustria. And she starts out working in the kitchen, and then she is promoted to a serving maid to the current queen. But soon she's going to catch the king's eye. He's going to set aside his queen and take Fredegund first as his concubine. And then we'll see later. She also has a role to play too. She does. Yes. Yes. And oddly enough, although we don't know how she accomplishes this though, there's evidence that Fredegund is also literate and not just in her native Frankish, but in Latin too, which is quite unusual for someone who starts off in the time period as a kitchen slave. Hmm. Yeah. Really interesting to kind of juxtapose those two um, childhoods and initial years. Um, And You can probably tell listeners that there's a little bit of a spoiler coming, uh, but don't worry, we're going to reveal it now, Um, which is, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, this book covers a time period of civil war between these four uh, political entities that, um, Shelley, you've helpfully outlined for us. Um, And again, in another really great quote that comes right towards the beginning of the book and really sets the scene uh, very strongly The Civil War, quote, begins with three weddings in quick succession and one murder. Can you tell us about these events? Sure. So it's a bit of a whirlwind, but to give you a basic outline, Brunhild is married to one Frankish king named Sigebert, and that was to secure an alliance with Spain. The second wedding is going to be between between Brunhild's older sister and her brother-in-law, King Chilperic who rules Neustria, another Frankish kingdom. And this wedding wasn't going to happen, but Chilperic happens to inherit a huge amount of land on the border with Spain, and he's able to offer this land in exchange for her hand. And then the third wedding is going to take place under very unusual circumstances, shall we say. Brunhild's sister keeps finding King Chilperic in bed with the slave Fredegun. She's incredibly insulted. She's so outraged that she threatens to leave him and return to Spain. And then conveniently, she is found strangled in her bed. And three days later, Chilperic marries his slave, Fredegund, and she becomes queen. A little bit of drama. And that's how we end up with the two dark queens of the title. Um, And the rest of the book then primarily traces the sort of careers and lives and interactions of Brunhild and um, 
Fredegund, which is fascinating. So we're not going to be able to go into every aspect of um, their lives or interactions, unfortunately, because it really is, uh, it, it just continues to be fascinating. It, it's not like there's these three weddings and a murder and then everything's boring after that. Um, but I'm going to sort of pick out some of the highlights to discuss um, and give it a little bit of a taste of what these lives um, end up looking like. So we've laid out that Brynhild marries uh, Sigebert and they have some children. And um, unsurprisingly, the civil war involves uh, the two brothers that are already mentioned going to war against each other. Um, there's battles and violence and all sorts of things. Um, and at one point, Sigebert dies, or perhaps more accurately, is <laughs> murdered. Um, and interestingly, this murder seems to set up kind of a cultural trope that we somehow still have to a degree. Um, so that would be a fascinating thing to discuss if you um, could, could give us some ideas. And then I, I I almost want to kind of continue on the theme of weddings and marriage. So we, we have this wedding and marriage, but, th- but then what happens next? He, he's murdered. And, and then what? Um, but maybe if I'll, 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 I'm getting ahead of myself, so maybe I'll unpack that into two questions. The first off, uh, how exactly is he murdered and why has this become such a thing that we still remember, um, or at least the method? And then what happens marriage-wise after he's killed? So Sigebert is murdered by poison daggers. And like you say, it's become this incredible trope. But I was fascinated to learn that up until this time period, this isn't a way that people are typically murdered. Uh, people are, you know, sometimes lots of people are poisoned in their food or drink. Like that's quite common. And sometimes uh, like arrows are tipped in things that will make, uh, that will basically, if you can't, you know, if you can only wound somebody, it's going to become infected and that's going to later, you know, inhibit their ability to like attack you back. But nobody has a way of assassinating people by tipping daggers in some sort of fast-acting poison, but Fredegond is able to figure this out, and she's able to make sure that Sigebert dies by sending these two very inexperienced assassins, but they don't need to be good at their job. They just need to get close enough to break the skin, and he dies very quickly. Um, Yeah, isn't that fascinating? That's not where that comes from, right? The idea of a, a queen or any sort of woman... Um, and the trope of, oh, killing people with the poison dagger, um, that is such a trope that we don't even think about it. And I had no idea that this book would teach me where that comes from. Um, so I suppose it is in some ways a footnote of the larger story, but I'm really glad we got to mention it. Me too. Um, <laughs> but then what happens to Brynhild? Uh, because obviously she's not exactly old at this point. They have been married for enough time to have some children, but it's not like he dies of old age. So what happens to Brynhild when her king is now dead? She's incredibly vulnerable. I mean, this is one of the worst positions that a royal widow can be in. And after his death, um, you know, she's forced into a convent by her brother-in-law, which is a very common way at the time to get rid of excess royal women. And her daughters are essentially in control of her brother-in-law. But luckily, she's been smart enough to be able to secrete her son, back across over the border. She was able to do sort of maneuvering and, you know, make sure that he escapes. So he is back home in his kingdom, but he's a five-year-old boy. So he can't, he can't really rule. And she's stuck in a convent and her daughters are under the thumb of her brother-in-law. So while she's in this convent, she secretly arranges a second marriage to her nephew. Um, 
he's just, you know, so it sounds a little bit better. They are roughly the same age. This is from a prior marriage of, of Chilperic. But the second marriage offers her a way out of the convent, but it's also part of a larger plot against her brother-in-law. It's a way to launch a rebellion against him. And in the course of this, she is able to find her way back to her kingdom and to her son. And meanwhile, Fredegund is still married, but also in many ways is, I guess, not quite the power behind the throne, because that implies that her husband is completely not doing anything. Um, But she does seem to have really quite a powerful role, um, as obviously manifested by successfully assassinating her political rival. Um, So that's kind of where we're at at this point, with these two women in some ways very much coming into their own in terms of power, but also still being quite vulnerable. Um, And that seems to be sort of a theme in this era. And it's certainly how we sort of think about it now, like, oh, women back then just had no options. And yet you've already sort of mentioned that these two women certainly had power. And there's a number of others in the book as well. In fact, in some of these places where you wouldn't think. So you actually show in the book uh, this idea of royal widows being bundled off to convents that is quite common. And yet sometimes those convents can actually be sources of power um, for women at the time. So can you tell us a bit about kind of what were the structures and possibilities for women to be powerful in ways that today we might not expect they have they were able to be? Absolutely. So there are women exerting power, obviously as royal women, but also as abbesses or very powerful nuns within the church. And we also have them as business owners and as healers. So those are kind of uh, four paths to power. And abbesses in particular could be incredibly powerful. And there's a lot of cases of former queens Um, Once they are in the convent, being able to use that to their advantage. There's one in particular, Radigund, who leaves her husband um, and runs off to the convent as opposed to, you know, most women go fighting, kicking and screaming, and she wants to be there. And she essentially sets up like a second court at this convent and has all the trappings that one would expect of a queen, but she's in the convent. But, you know, she has these foreign dignitaries coming to visit her. She has a court poet. She has these feasts. Uh, she has servants and slaves and all these, you know, relics. So that's kind of fascinating. And she's, while Radigund is quite unusual, there are certainly women of lesser stature who are doing a very similar sort of thing on a lesser scale. And I also wanted to mention that I had initially assumed that Brunhild and Fredegund were anomalies in some ways because it was such an unusual story for me. But I'm realizing they followed in the footsteps of a lot of other powerful queens. So um, there was, you know, prior as when they were children, they would have been familiar with like this very powerful Ostrogothic queen named Amalasantha. I already talked a little bit about how Brunhild had a very powerful mother um, who's, you know, a Visigothic queen. There are other Frankish queens who have been, you know, immensely powerful and What's kind of amazing is that in the sixth century, there's going to be this period where there's going to be six female heads of state. So not just in Francia, but in Lombard, Italy, the Byzantine Empire, Japan, and the Mayan kingdoms. So I also thought that that was stunning that we have women not just exerting power in the church and in business and in medicine, but also, you know, just so many women exercising formal power in such a public way. 
I'm, I'm glad you added um, that sort of clarification because it is really quite stunning. It's not what I think most people expect from that time period. Um, and I would definitely uh, recommend to listeners, if you want to know more about Radigund, uh, there's yes. a lot more about in the book, particularly around the how she ends up in the convent in the first place. Um, it is not what you would necessarily expect. <laughs> um, but we'll stay focused mainly on the two queens of the title. Um, and so at this point, uh, there's various, we, we've talked a little bit about their marriages. Um, Brunhild, we've said, had children, so did Fredegund. Um, But at a certain point, they become, as you said, heads of state. They become regents of their respective kingdoms. Um, how exactly does that happen? So when both of their husbands are assassinated, they leave behind underage sons. But neither of them initially seizes power. So it's not as though the king dies and they say, okay, queen is automatically regent. They both have to build coalitions with uh, the existing factions in their husband's court and maneuver themselves into the regency. And they're able to do that. They're able to present themselves in this society that really just worships warrior kings and, you know, particular vision of masculinity, but they're able to still position themselves as the best alternative, whether that's, you know, for security or just that they are competent. Um, and I find that kind of, kind of stunning. And they both do so in, you know, kind of very different ways. And obviously they form alliances with a lot of powerful men. So they've both been, uh, you know, very busy befriending, you know, powerful bishops and men of the cloth, but also their husbands, you know, advisors, whether that's the people who control the royal treasury or certain generals, you know, uh, Fredegund, you know, had a longstanding friendship with one of her husband's top generals, for example. And Brunhild had a longstanding friendship with this count who was essentially her husband's right man. So they had built these support networks. And they also had built these support networks with other women, which was really fascinating. For example, um, there's more evidence of this in terms of what Brunhild was able to do, but she was able to foil a lot of assassination attempts thanks to help from other women. Fredegan was able to root out some conspirators thanks to female servants who were loyal to her. And Brunhild works with her mother and her daughter, uh, quite extensively. And thanks to a surviving treaty, we also know of a lot of cooperation between Brunhild and other female family members where Brunhild negotiates legal protections, not just for herself, but for these other women so that they will all be financially independent for the duration of their life and can't be forced into a convent. So we can see why they may have had uh, quite an incentive to work, whether openly or behind the scenes to support their bids for power as well. And, I think that the idea of alliances is really important, especially with Brunhild. There's sort of the idea of different factions in court, even when her husband was alive, um, and kind of her skillful ability to kind of know what each of them wants and work, move between them and with them at different time periods, uh, which is really quite interesting. Um, and as well, the idea of forming alliances, in some cases, it almost seems like what enabled them to become regents and remain regents was uh, like successfully aping in a way some of the masculine attributes. So uh, I wonder if you can maybe tell us in a minute about uh, Brynhild, I believe it was, and kind of the battlefield and how that how that was manifested. But also in some ways, as you said, kind of leveraging the female side, uh, the female identity and construction. And so 
uh, this came a lot in examples you gave um, that you could maybe tell us a little bit about around kind of relations with the Byzantine Empire and the voice of a mother and how that kind of came across, even though obviously the two queens didn't go to Byzantium every time they wanted, they sent letters and sent diplomats. So could you maybe give us an example of kind of how they negotiated the more sort of masculine performative elements of rulership, but also how they leveraged the female perception as well? That's a great question. Yes. So let me dig in here. Um, As far as the masculine elements, you know, Frankish King is at this point in time, really expected to be able to keep peace among his factions, various factions at court, and also to be able to wage war. You know, that's just, that's just, you know, foremost in most of the minds of his subjects. And so there's this like one particular instance where there are two factions that are warring. One has essentially ambushed the other on a field and they're getting ready to go into battle. And Brunhild, we know, it, you know, the Latin is she arms herself as a man that she dresses just like a male warrior would and goes and stands in between them on the battlefield and gets into a shouting match with one of her subjects who tells her to step aside. And this is not verbatim, but, you know, words to the effect of you've already wielded enough power alongside your husband. You know, it's time for you to step aside, move out of the way, and she will not budge. And eventually he backs down. But there's this sense of she acts exactly as one would expect a male king to act in that she physically takes on this, you know, symbolic. There's a particular belt that the Franks, the Frankish warriors wear, and she actually dons that. And the fact that she's showing this sort of battlefield courage. But then there's also this point where when negotiating, for example, with the Byzantine emperor, she is sending these letters, but they're being sent to the empress. And everyone knows that all of the imperial correspondence is read aloud in court. So it's all, you know, performance. But there's, you know, essentially where she's negotiating with the empress and part of it's like, oh, I'm a poor mother and I'm, you know, I'm upset and, and appealing to things that one might think of as, you know, this woman's sense of justice and mercy and concern for her own children. But then there's also these hints of steel in her voice where, you know, essentially she sounds like a kind of American mafia gangster when she makes these statements along the lines of, it would really be a shame if something were to happen to your son. Now, wouldn't it? And then she switches back into this sort of, woe is me. Uh, I, you know, I can't believe this is happening and I just want to be reunited with my children. So this sense of being able to perform both roles really serves her well. Thank you for explaining that and giving us those examples because um, it is really evocative and shows the skill um, of Brunhild in this instance. Um, and so in the interest of balance, I want to switch over to Fritigan for a second. Of course. Um, and so she, uh, we, we've talked a little bit about assassination um, mm-hmm. It should be clear to listeners that assassination was a generally a thing in this time period. It wasn't <laughs> really a one-off instance. Um, there were a number of assassination plots and attempts and all sorts of things. But even in this atmosphere, Fritigan does seem to rely on assassination maybe more than other political actors, um, both based on what we know now, kind of looking back, we can make that assessment, but also it seems somewhat at the time she was perceived to particularly rely on this um, method. Why? So, 
you're absolutely right. Like over the course of her life, Fredegan is going to be linked to 12 political assassination attempts. Six of those are successful. And those are just the ones that are documented links by like an actual formal accusation. There are dozens more where it's rumored or one could say, wow, this was really convenient that this person was assassinated at this time. And she certainly, it's plausible, may have been behind it. But she doesn't need to necessarily assassinate people in that she has a personal guard. She commands an army, but she certainly seems to prefer it. And, you know, we can't know for sure, obviously, but I think very plausible theories are that she may have avoided dispatching soldiers. So there's no official trail back to her. And she can then again play the feminine role of, oh, me? No, of course not. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm just a poor woman over here. Why, why would you think I had done that? So she has that sort of plausible deniability. But we can also know that Fredegan would have been unsure of the loyalty of all of her soldiers. Armies spend immense amounts of time with one another. You know, when they are marching into battle, these are these are campaigns that can take half the year. And they're side by side. Um, over these long periods of time, they have their own culture and their first loyalty is often to their commander, not necessarily their queen. These soldiers may have had that sort of relationship with a male king that would have been forged over many military campaigns. But Fredegan couldn't really be sure of that because she's not, at least initially, marching out into battle with them. And she has come from the lower classes. She has connected with slaves and servants, and she seems much more certain of their loyalty and is able to provide them with, you know, pretty big incentive. If you're successful, you'll be set up for life. And if you fail, your family will be taken care of. So she seems that she's going to stick essentially with what she knows as opposed to gambling on sending a soldier who may just as easily, you know, turn his dagger against her. Those are rational reasons to rely on assassination. Um, what was the impact, though, of being accused of using assassination at that time? Presumably it was not a neutral <laughs> accusation. So how did that impact her career? In many ways, it is a way of sort of playing the masculine because a lot of her brother-in-laws and the men who had come before her, that was something, you know, a tool that they used. Obviously, they would fight kind of in open battle, but certainly this happened plenty of times behind the scenes where we have like kind of grown men assassinating young children. It's quite grotesque. Um, so, you know, in some ways, uh, she's always taking out someone who is her own age or, you know, older of her same relative status. Um, so it's not that unusual, but I think it also creates this sort of air of mystery around her and fear. Um, and people don't know, you know, she seems to have eyes and ears. She certainly has this network of servants and slaves and one can easily imagine, it doesn't take a great leap of imagination to know that they're also likely reporting back to her. I mean, she has this great sort of spy network. And then you have these people that just mysteriously drop dead. So one can imagine, you know, that effect is you don't know where the queen is. You don't know when she's going to strike next. It's best to stay on her good side that she was really able to use this to her advantage. That makes sense. I can see how that would be a powerful uh, disincentive to ever cross her. Um, and yet, obviously, these women are not immortal. So they are regents of their kingdom. They do wield a massive amount of power. Um, and yet, how does do their times as regent, how, how do their careers end? 
So their ends could not be more different, just like their backgrounds and upbringings. Uh, Fredegund, after such, I mean, she has been at the end of her, towards the end of her career, marching into battle and leading armies. So she's able to transition into that. And not that long after she's just gone through these very long and we would assume exhausting maneuvers, she dies in her bed. And there's not a lot of detail about what this illness was. And she's only in at best that we can pin her age down. You know, possibly the oldest she could have been was her mid fifties. And a lot is made of how she dies peacefully in her own bed. So for someone who lives kind of on the edge of this, she doesn't die, you know, in battle or from an assassin, but just sort of very typically for the time period. On the other hand, Brunhild is going to be executed in a spectacularly grotesque fashion by Clothar II, who is Fredegund's son and her own nephew. And I won't bore you with all the gory details, but it is it is it is something. And I recommend those who are interested read the full account of it. And a lot of people say that it's arguably the most brutal execution, you know, that a queen has ever endured, as far as we know in recorded history. And in addition to being so brutal um, for herself, you also talk about in the book how the circumstances around her death, quote, set in motion the events that would doom the dynasty. So I think we can probably leave the gruesome details of the execution for listeners to go read about, but maybe you could give us an idea about kind of the wider implications and impacts of her death. Absolutely. So because she's so powerful and so competent, she's unable to be defeated in outright battle. And the only way she can be captured and then executed is that Clothar II has to entice some of her men, some of her most sort of trusted advisors to betray her. But in order to do that, he has to make a deal with them. And in exchange, he has to give up some of the power of the monarchy. So in 1614, he issues something called the Edict of Paris, which is widely considered to be an early predecessor of the Magna Carta. And essentially, he gives nobles some power that up to then they hadn't had. And he also says that the Frankish Empire will never be consolidated in one place under one crown with one capital. It'll always be divided. So we have that there's always been this dream that perhaps the Roman Empire might be reconstituted in Europe. And, you know, we might have this sort of one empire. And right there, it kind of dooms it. We know we're going to have these sort of fragmented nation states. Clothar also makes a deal with a man who holds a position called the mayor of the palace. And essentially, this is a contemporary secretary of state. It's always been an appointed position that served at the pleasure of the king. But in exchange for this man's loyalty, he makes it a lifetime appointment. Then it becomes a hereditary appointment and the Carolingian dynasty that gives us Charlemagne and will supplant these Merovingians. They come from this hereditary position of the mayors of the palace. So he essentially has given power to the next dynasty by, by this point in time, even though it's going to take you know a few more generations for all of this to to essentially be seen through. Though interestingly, not as many generations as you would think at the beginning of the book when you lay out kind of how politics works. Um, It really does change quite a lot through the course of these uh, two queens' lives, in large part because of them, which is fascinating, Um, especially when we think about the fact that these queens are then forgotten or 
more accurately, perhaps erased from history. Why and how was that done? So King Clothar, when he takes office, in addition to issuing this Edict of Paris, he also erases both Brunhild and his own mother from the public record entirely. So there are these lists of things that are pretty innocuous, like tolls and taxes and just historical records. And he has them both struck entirely from the record. And as far as for why, it seems he was criticized for having been influenced too much by women. It's kind of a pointed jab at how much power his mother held over him during her lifetime and also his own queen. So it seems that he's a little sensitive to any of those sort of accusations. But And then there are other chronicles where there's still going to be a mention of both queens, but we can see how their narratives are going to be purposely shaped, how as time goes on, certain elements are going to be added or removed to portray them as immoral and as bad leaders, and it's essentially incompetent in order to discourage any of the other women who you know want to follow in their footsteps. And there are other queen regents after them who assume, you know, try to do ex- similar to what they did, but they, uh, the establishment is able to stop them much more quickly and sort of put them in their place. But this erasure and this rewriting collectively essentially sends the message that these two women didn't have the right to be remembered. And yet in one area, they are remembered, um, kind of a surprising way, because in one way, in, in some senses, they are remembered in this way, but it's also used as a way to remember them only in particular aspects and kind of re-emphasize this bad example. And this place that they're remembered in is in myths and literature and plays and operas, right? All the sort of fictional side of things rather than maybe official fact-based history. So uh, why are they remembered in these methods? And maybe you can give us some examples of Uh, how we see them uh, in some of these forms. I think it's fascinating how marginalized people always find a way to pass the word down. So if people are preserved in the official record, we can often find traces of them in, you know, kind of myths and legends and the literature of the time period. And they're no exception. Norse legends end up incorporating stories about both queens into the myth of Brunhild, which is about you know two sisters-in-law whose feud threatens an entire realm. And then these legends are then used by Wagner as the basis for his opera cycle, During Days Nibelungen. And uh, we also might see echoes of that opera in The Lord of the Rings, which is a movie I'm sure all of us are familiar with. Uh, There's an influence on Shakespeare where Fredegon is a skilled warrior and one of her battle strategies is later adopted in Macbeth, the famous scene where Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane. And a lot of people have made a convincing argument that there are uncanny parallels between these two queens and Cersei in Game of Thrones, for example. Or we can find uh, a lot of echoes of things that Fredegon did in her lifetime preserved in a lot of fairy tales about evil stepmothers. Trend setting. Clearly, the thing here is trend setting. Um, But it is really interesting. Uh, The book, one of the examples towards the beginning of the book is Wagner's opera, um, Brynhild, and kind of going, oh, wait a second, I have heard of that. I had no idea that this is what it was based on. Um, Similarly, the woods coming to Dunsinane, reading that that's actually a battlefield tactic that was deployed. 
um, was an unexpected <laughs> find uh, for me as a reader of this book. Um, but what was was there anything in particular in the research or writing of this that really jumped out at you to you as a surprise? I had many surprises reading it, um, but you obviously spent a lot more time putting it together. There were so many surprises. I think my family became quite tired of me coming down to dinner and saying, you're not going to believe what happened now. Um, and they would kind of <laughs> eye roll and say, what did Freda Gunn do? <laughs> but but, but um, even, you know, there are like, for example, the story that I was just uh, telling you about Freda Gunn being preserved, you know, oddly enough in Macbeth, the thing that there are all these sort of peripheral stories that just fascinate me to no end. And that one of those is that it seems as though that story is preserved and then able to, you know, be made use of because a nun in a convent writes it down. So I thought that was really fascinating that even after they've essentially been struck from the the public record and it's really frowned upon to be speaking of these women that, you know, within that same generation, there's a nun who's completely cloistered and clearly has nothing to do with sort of battlefield exploits, but is kind of secretly thrilled by this story and is the one to write it down and preserve it. Uh, that's not, you know, absolutely ironclad, but the evidence really suggests that it was written down in this particular convent in Soissons. And these, these, uh, these particular nuns that recorded the story really thrilled to the battlefield exploits of Fredegund. And you can just tell in the chronicles, there's like this switch in their voice when they're recording it, they become, um, incredibly effusive and they include all of this dialogue and all of these extra details, which really also gives a sense of this is a story that, and this is just, you know, a few decades after, after her death. So it's not been terribly long, but that people have been telling themselves over and over and over again and keeping alive in their imaginations. Um, and I find that kind of, kind of thrilling to just think of how ordinary people, ordinary women, young girls were, you know, this, this really caught fire in their imagination, these stories. This was something they really wanted to make sure that they could pass down to subsequent generations. That is a great detail and a great find. Um, I think there is a whole, we could have done a whole, we could have done this whole interview through the lens of kind of the nuns of the, as the back story <laughs> characters, the secondary cast of characters um, throughout this book, because uh, they do kind of show up in a number of ways, but uh, that's a really interesting way as well. Um, preserving the record uh, so thank you for sharing that um, so obviously I enjoyed this book rather a lot and learned quite a lot from it um, and you seem to have learned a lot in the process which is wonderful but it is done to a degree it is now out and people could read it so what are you working on now or next so I I guess this is my nonfiction debut and I, my background is in poetry, and I actually have a poetry collection coming out in the fall of 2022. So that was something that I was like finishing up work on while I was working on this. So I'm going to be seeing that out into the world. And then I have another nonfiction project, another book, I hope, uh, that I'm also working on about another powerful woman that's been lost to history. And I hope that that's something I'll be able to see through to fruition. Amazing. Um, well, while you are off doing that, uh, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing titled The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World, published by Bloomsbury in 2022. Shelley Puhak, thank you so much. 
for sharing your time and insight with us today. It has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for having me.